0: Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. God, help us as we open your word together. Give us understanding. Give us clarity on how we should commune and talk with you through this gift of prayer. In your name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. You know, prayer is one of those funny things. It's something we often talk about. Obviously, in church, we've now prayed approximately three times, and we will do one more time at the end. There's prayer kind of comes in and out, and we a lot of times in church circles. I'll be in meetings, and we'll start a meeting in prayer, and we'll of course we'll close a meeting in prayer, and it kind of becomes the parenthesis around the meeting. But what is prayer? What is how do we do this? How do we pray? individually. And in, in Luke's account of, of the, the Lord's prayer that we're reading, obviously we're reading Matthew's, but in Luke's account, he says that the disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. Prayer is something that we have to learn. But I think in this passage, there's a few things, a few principles that we can glean from this. And, and if you want to fill in blanks, we, we can essentially see, first of all, that prayer is presumed. And by the way, I apologize for my voice. I don't know what happened. It started out really good today, and then we practiced, and I I overdid it. But I'm going to do my best. Hopefully, I'll speak well enough, and you can listen for what the Spirit has. But prayer is presumed. In other words, it's expected. In these first few verses, Jesus tells them three different times. He says, when you pray, when you pray, and when you pray. He even includes the command, pray then like this. He knows that we're gonna pray. So he tells them, pray like this and gives them that instruction, that guideline that we have in the Lord's Prayer. And we'll see that in a minute. But prayer is essentially our means of connecting and communicating with God. It provides that outlet, through which we can express our deepest needs and longings and desires to the sovereign God of the universe. And I think in some ways prayer is presumed because like Pascal said, there is a God-shaped void inside of each of us. There's something in us that longs to connect with the God of the universe. And prayer is one of those means by which we connect with him. And while it may be expected, it's also learned, we learn so much from the examples of others, from parents. I remember growing up, my dad would always pray at dinner time, at the meal. And and it was so funny, you know, because as a kid, you know, you're all there, you're all waiting to eat. Come on, just get through the prayer so we can dig in, right? And my dad would always finish his prayer, Fritz, in your name we pray, amen. And one day I finally said, Dad, who's Fritz? who's Fritz? And he said, no, for it's in your name we pray. Oh, okay. I get it. But we learn how, right? We learn how to pray. We learn from hearing others. We learn from mature brothers and sisters in Christ. We learn the way that they interact with God, the way that they pour their heart out before the Lord. We learn from leaders and as I said, in Luke's discussion, Jesus' disciples asked him in Luke uh, chapter 11, 1 to 4, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. We have to learn how to do this. And we can read stories about great warriors, great prayer warriors of faith, heroes of the faith, people that we're going to sing around the throne with, the people we talked about. In fact, I was just thinking a little bit while we were singing, you know, it'll be kind of cool to hang out with Martin Luther, Right singing good old songs. Maybe we'll sing in German. It'd be kind of fun. Maybe he'll prefer, no, he won't prefer Latin. But Martin Luther used to pray three hours a day. And I'm thinking, man, Martin, how do you do that? George Mueller prayed with such faith that it was amazing. I've I've heard stories about the way that he would praise said, God. You know, we have no food in our orphanage. So we are trusting in your provision. Someone came to the door, their refrigerators were done, and they here, we have all this extra food. And so they fed the orphans for another day. He prayed prayers of faith. And then there's guys like Adoniram Judson, who served in, overseas in, in Asia. He would pause at seven different times during the day to steal away to prayer, to, to pray to intercede, 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m., 5 p.m., or 6 p.m., you know, all these different times during the day. And we can learn from people like that and and think, oh, man, I can never be like that. And so I want to encourage us. I want to encourage me. We don't need to be intimidated by these prayer warriors. We can learn from them, be encouraged by them, be challenged by them. But even if our prayers last no more than two or three minutes, three or four seconds, we should pray. We should pray. The disciples had grown up praying, but they wanted to learn how to do it better. They could see the the religious leaders, but, but they wanted to learn more. Lord, help us to pray. But in addition to being presumed, Jesus says that prayer is intended to be private. We see this in verses five and six. As he teaches the people how to pray, Jesus contrasts the genuine prayer that, that he intends with the prayers of two different groups of people. And he essentially compares the religious leaders and Gentiles or pagans, people who are polytheistic, if you will. They're worshiping the whole pantheon of Roman deities. And so he begins this first one contrasting genuine prayer with the prayer of the religious leaders. He, he urges that prayer be private in contrast to how these guys, these hypocrites, are praying. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, and, and when you pray, there's that presumption, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who, see, who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. You see, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been telling those listening to him, he said, you have heard that it was said. And then he contrasts that with, but I say to you. And typically what he's doing what he's, what he's been countering is the traditional wisdom, the, the wisdom of those religious leaders who were more about them than they were about God. And he repeatedly told them, he challenged the way that conventional wisdom was going. So in prayer two, he challenges his, fathers, his followers to avoid praying like these religious elites. And it seems that their pattern of prayer, their pattern would be to conveniently stop at the most inopportune place. I've heard it. Someone taught me a a long time ago that they would pray at certain times during the day. And so some of the religious leaders would have their watch out. They get their Apple watch out and make sure, oh, it's about that time. So I'm going to walk outside of the synagogue, outside of the temple, right in the middle of Main Street. Oh, there's the prayer. And I'm going to hold my hands out and pray really loud so that everybody sees me. And, and Jesus is saying, no, don't pray like that. Go in your closet, get on your knees and pray in secret. Their motivation was so wrapped up in the optics. I think sometimes for, for us, we have to, we do, I mean, our culture is all about optics. What is the right thing to do? How will we perceive to be, be perceived if we do this or that? And so Jesus is saying, take the optics out of it. Let's just pray. I want you just to commune with me in prayer. But in Jesus, we find him repeatedly going away for extended periods of time to pray. In Matthew chapter 14 and Mark 6, after feeding the 5,000, he dismissed the crowd. He told his disciples to get in a boat and start going across the sea. And he went up on the mountain and prayed. And we don't know how long, but he was away. He needed to pray. In Matthew 26 and Mark 14, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he went away, it says, a stone's throw from his disciples to pray. He was alone. In Luke 5, Luke states that it was his pattern on and on and on to go away to desolate places to pray. And then even in Luke 6, the night before he announced who all his disciples were gonna be, who the apostles were gonna be, he spent all night praying. That was a big decision. And he, Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took time to pray all night long. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, he prayed with Peter. He went up to the Mount with Peter, James, and John, intending to pray. And in Luke 11, when he was with his disciples, he just was in a certain place praying when they said, Lord, teach us. I think there's a, I think that, that Jesus' point here is that when we pray, we, we need to be careful not to do it in order to be seen, but to get away. I think it's okay at times to be seen. I think as parents, we need to be able to be seen and heard by our children so they can learn. But I think there are also those times when maybe we just need to find that corner of the room. I had a friend who, who set aside. They had a little, they live in a townhouse and, and they had this little small room that was not quite tall enough to stand up in. So he had this desk and books and he would crawl. I mean, the door even had to go low to get it. And that's where he would study scripture in the morning and that's where he would pray. It was literally a closet. And he would have to bow low to pray. He couldn't stay. It was really, really a neat place. So that kind of begs the question, obviously I mentioned that we've prayed now three times in this service and they've all been out loud. So what about the, the prayers that we do up front? Is Jesus saying that we shouldn't do those prayers? I, no, I don't think he's getting at that. I don't think he's saying we shouldn't do that. Throughout scripture, we find public prayers and Jesus even has a few. In fact, there's one kind of interesting situation. In fact, this afternoon, go, go back and, and read John chapter 17. And there's a very interesting part. This is the, the resurrection of Lazarus. I'm sorry, not, not, not John. And John 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer. In fact, there we have him praying and it's a different pattern than what we're seeing here. But in John chapter 11, we have this interesting, interesting scene in, in the uh, healing of Lazarus or the resurrection of Lazarus. He has talked with Martha and Mary. He's come to the tomb and he said, hey guys, roll away the stone. And then he stands there And it's so interesting. In in John 11, 41 and 42, he says, so they took away this stone. Man, I'm sorry. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, now get this. There's a whole crowd of people who've been weeping and mourning and wailing with Mary and Martha. So he says loud enough for them to hear, Father, I knew that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. And I said this on account of the people standing Around, So is Jesus being hypocritical by telling his followers not to pray like the Pharisees, but then praying in a way that everybody could hear him? And I think the difference here is that Jesus, at this moment, he's about to do something amazing that no Pharisee could do. He's about to do something that's going to become the catalyst that speeds up his progression to the cross. And he needs people to know that he has this connection with God, that he's not just some average person. And rather than trying to garner praise, he wanted people to know that his power came from God and no other source. So I don't think public prayers are out of order, but I do think that when we have opportunities to pray. Obviously, it's typically the elders who are doing the sort of pastoral kind of prayer, but w- there may be opportunities for all of us at different times. Maybe it's a, a family meal. Maybe it's a, um, a, another gathering of some sort. I think it's in, it's, it's encur- we should be encouraged to make sure our hearts are right before God, to make sure that when we're praying in public, that we're not trying to impress the people around us. Am I secretly hoping that you'll be in awe of me and my prayers? No. May we all, whether the, around the table, in an office with friends over a Bible study or up front here at church, may we all come to pray with genuine hearts, not seeking any praise from anyone else. So in this teaching, Jesus not only tells us that prayer is presumed or expected, it's intended to be private. Prayer is also intended to be personal. We see this in verses seven and eight. It seems that these Gentiles, these pagan people would would pray rote, mindless prayers. So look at verses seven and eight. It says, and when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. I mentioned in the, in the midweek email that I listened to the book Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus this week by a guy named Nabil Qureshi, and I highly recommend that book. It's a phenomenal book. Um, and the audio is really cool because it's him reading. He died about five, six years ago. It's him reading and you get just all the Arabic and it's really, really neat. But one of the things that he said, and he, he, he long, looked back with great affection for his time as a Muslim. And he, 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 he enjoyed being a, a follower of Allah, being a Muslim in the time when he was. But one of the things that I found very interesting is, is he said we would go and we would pray at certain times of day and we'd face Mecca and we would have these certain positions that we always had to be in. And the prayer was the same almost every single time. It was the same words over and over and over and over and over. And then... Finally, at one point, when he, as, as, his, as he was moving more and more closer to Jesus Christ, to being a, a Jesus follower, he finally prayed out in tears, laid himself out before God on the floor and said, God, I need you to answer me. I need help. Bring me comfort. Ease my doubts. Give me time to mourn. And what was so neat in the book is to be able to hear him move from these repetitious prayers to these very personal prayers and to hear how God answered his personal, intentional prayers. It was a big decision. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ means we leave everything behind us. In some cultures, that's much harder to do than it is in our individualistic culture. But we have to recognize we leave everything to follow Jesus. And he knew he was leaving everything behind. And so even in that moment when he said, God, can I please mourn? He opened up the Quran and he looked for verses that talked about mourning and he found a conditional appeal from Allah. But then he opened up scripture. And in fact, he opened to the, to the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And he found that it said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's like, oh, God, thank you for giving me this opportunity to mourn what I'm leaving behind. Last week, we talked about praying in light of what we've been reading or meditating on. And I think as we come to prayer, this is a helpful practice. As we are allowing God's word to guide our prayers. It keeps us from praying wrote familiar prayers. I, I don't know if you're like me. Sometimes I fall into that where it's like, oh God, will you be with this person and will you be with that person and will you? And it's, it's like, well, what am I really asking God to do? Am I really connecting with him or am I just doing a perfunctory prayer? And I think if we can start with scripture and pray scripture for the people that we're praying for, pray over them with God's word, guided by his word, pouring our hearts out from his word. So right on the heels of countering the self-promoting prayers of the Pharisees and the empty phrases of the Gentiles, Jesus gives his disciples a sort of model. And because all of the other points have started with P, I needed a word that started with P. And so the P word is prim, which means orderly. Jesus gave them an orderly way to come before the Lord. And sometimes, you know, I've heard this passage taught as sort of an outline for prayer, and it can be that. But I think as we get to it, we can. it really deals more with the matter of the heart, with how we're moving. So let me read this in a different translation. This is the NET, verses 9 to 13 in Matthew 6. It says, so pray this way, Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we ourselves have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So the the model that Jesus laid, out for us suggests that that prayers should begin with an attitude that is exultant, almost as though our hands are up, worshiping God, exalting Him, honoring Him. Last week, when we were talking about meditation, if you remember, we used the acronym: Pray, Praise, Repent, Ask, Yield. We began with this idea of praying. We come with this idea of recognizing that God is the one who is to be honored and glorified. God is the one who is to be praised. We come in an attitude of respect. We're invited to talk to God as father and yet honor him as sovereign God of the universe. And in doing so, we come asking that God's fame and his renown be magnified. John Piper notes his book, Providence. He says, the fact that Jesus doesn't just command us to revere God's name, but tells us to pray that it be revered, that his name be revered, shows that God is the decisive cause in the glorification of God. God is the one who glorifies himself through his people. We are praying that God would cause us and others to revere God. So it's as though every prayer that we pray begins with a recognition that God is the all-sufficient sovereign over all things who will be glorified and has the power to accomplish all that he desires. He is the source of life. The attitude of our hearts echoes that of the psalmist who seeks seeks God's glory alone. In Psalm 115, it says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your, your steadfast love and your faithfulness. So in coming to God in an, in an exultant way that seeks for his glory to be magnified, our natural response then is to bow low, which takes us to the next matter of the heart, next attitude, and that is to be subservient. And so it's as though we go from hands up to knees down and we, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we can recognize that what's down here has fallen far from what God has intended from heaven. We come humbly seeking that what happens in heaven would happen here. And the psalmist, again, I think provides an interesting perspective in Psalm one I'm sorry, 123 verses 1 to 2. He says, To you I lift up my eyes, you who are enthroned in the heavens. And here's the subservient part. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the maidservant to the hands of her mistress, so to our so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Several years ago, Danielle and I used to watch Downton Abbey, and it was so interesting. In that era, and I don't know what was so appealing about it. I mean, it's just kind of a weird world. But if you'd notice, there were times when 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 the servants would would always they would keep their eyes on the the masters of the house, and they would be paying attention to what they might need, so that at any moment the, the they might say, "Hey, you know, I." I, I just one hand movement would say, oh, I need this. Or, or one look would say, I need that. And it's almost as though as servants of God, we come before him and we recognize that God, it's, it's truly your hand that's gonna lead us. It's truly your hand that's gonna guide us. So God, I wanna pay attention to what you are doing. And as Jesus progresses through this model prayer, we come to the recognition that we are dependent. So we are, have an exultant heart, we have a subservient attitude and we recognize that we are dependent. Give us this day our daily bread. When we are dependent, we recognize that everything we have is from God. He is Yahweh provider, Yahweh Jireh, our provider. In lean times, in those empty times when When there's not quite enough in the cupboard or the bank account, maybe it's an opportunity to say, God, you are my provider. Please provide you know where I need blank. And if that's not what I need, then help me to be content with what you have provided. And in times where resources abound, maybe this is a time of praise that we can say along with David in Psalm 16, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. John Piper has again said, when we humble ourselves like little children and put on no airs of self-sufficiency, but run happily to the joy of our father's embrace, the glory of his grace is magnified and the longing of our soul is satisfied. Another element to this model prayer is that that we have an attitude that is repentant. In other words, an attitude that is bowed down, face down. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And here we take a a good, truthful look at our own sinfulness. And it's, it's interesting that in this model prayer, Jesus seems to make God's forgiveness of us conditional on our forgiveness of others. And it's as though he's helping us to see that our relationship with God is connected with our relationship with each other. And we can't assume that things are good vertically if they're not good horizontally. And I think that's why Peter encourages husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way so that your prayers are not impeded. And I think this is why Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 tells the story of the unjust servant the unforgiving servant who owed the master more than he could ever repay and it was forgiven. And then he went to one of his fellow servants and threw him in prison for a minor debt. And he is essentially saying, we need to be people who forgive. God has forgiven us so much. We need to be people who forgive. And then after finishing the prayer, Jesus seems to come back to this point in the prayer. It's almost as though he knows something in us right? Because he not only told us to pray this way, but then he comes back and echoes it. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. See, when we come to God repentant, it's an opportunity to evaluate where we have been unforgiving. D.A. Carson has said, those in the kingdom serve a great king who has invariably forgiven far more than they, can, than they can ever forgive one another. Therefore, failure, excludes, failure to forgive excludes one from the kingdom whose pattern is to forgive. And the final part of Jesus' model prayer is that of being obedient almost as though we're standing humbly. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this is walking humbly with God, following where he leads, obedient to where he goes, where he directs, knowing that he is not going to lead us into evil. And in thinking through this order, there can be so many different patterns. There are people who like the the ACTS Pattern of praying, adore, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Or as we talked last week, pray, praise, repent, ask, yield. Some people, as I said, have seen the Lord's Prayer. You have this exultant and then subservient, dependent, repentant, and obedient attitude. And other than Jesus teaching here, we don't see this demonstrated elsewhere in Scripture. And as I said, even in Jesus' prayer in John 17, it was quite a different format. But the point is, not so much the order, but a matter of the heart It's that when we pray, we're recognizing God's sovereignty and our poverty. May we come before him with humility, and gratitude. So in closing, prayer is expected of us. God wants us to talk to him. God wants us to commune with him and he to commune with us through prayer. It'll take practice. It'll take time. So so start briefly. Start even with just a few minutes. If you're not in the pattern of praying, maybe get up a little bit earlier, maybe even just a minute earlier. It'll take patience, but keep praying, keep trying. For me, there are some days when I find that I have to ride out my prayers and, and maybe it's shorthand, maybe it's full sentences. And it's so interesting. In fact, yesterday, it was, it was, I did things a little bit out of my normal order. And I, there was something that was just weighing heavy on me. So I started with prayer. I said, God, I need you. And I wrote out some things. And then in my normal Bible reading, I came to a passage that it was almost like God was answering that prayer with this perspective. It's like, oh, wow, God, you're really cool. Some people have found, found praying the Lord's prayer is helpful. And for others, it can sometimes feel like empty words. We don't recite the Lord's prayer as a church very often, but when we do, I hope that it's not just rote, but something that is coming from our hearts. There's a guy named Elmer Towns, and in his book, Praying the Lord's Prayer for Spiritual Breakthrough, he briefly shared how he uses this prayer each day before he gets out of bed. He said, I lay there in bed, I I stretch my legs a little bit, and then I pray this prayer. And here's kind of how he does it. He says, our Father who art in heaven, may your name be hallowed in my duties today as your name is hallowed in heaven. Your kingdom come, may you reign in my life on earth as you rule in heaven. Thy will be done in my studying, teaching, counseling, as your will is done perfectly in heaven. Give me daily bread for my physical strength, for all my needs this day. Forgive me my sins and the consequences of my sins, including my actions and intent, and forgive others as you have forgiven me. Lead me not into temptation. Don't let sin overwhelm me, but give me victory today. Deliver me from the evil one. Protect me from the physical and spiritual harm. And then he concludes with with an extra little benediction that is in some translations of scripture. For thine is the kingdom. I recognize your sovereign control in my life. For thine is the power. I recognize your ability to do these things. For thine is the glory. I give you credit for every answer in Jesus' name.